Hi, I'm Casey. And I'm Holly, and this is Going Through It podcast from Bardo Consulting. And I am Adam Perry. Thank you guys for joining us today on episode two. We've divided today's episode up into two parts. Uh, The second part will air early next week. Today we have with us Dr. Linda G. Manning, who is a PhD level licensed psychologist providing supervision and consultation for clinicians in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Manning earned her PhD from the University of Texas at Austin and has completed advanced training in body-centered psychotherapy, mindfulness-based practices, and trauma treatment. She also offers groups and training workshops in somatic psychology and body-centered psychotherapy with her colleague, Kenneth Robinson. Before retiring in April of 2019, Linda was an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, as well as in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. She was the interim director of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine and provided mind-body therapy for adults struggling with chronic illness, trauma, and emotional and physical pain. She currently teaches a course, Trauma, Impact and Intervention, in Vanderbilt's Human Development Counseling Program. We're very excited to have you here, Linda. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Adam. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. So, Holly and Casey, why did you choose Linda to be our first guest? Well, we have strong-armed Linda into being our first guest on the podcast because Linda actually was one of my first professors when I was an undergrad at Vanderbilt. I signed up for Linda's um, Psychology of Women course in my first semester of freshman year, and it changed my life. Um, And I I don't say that lightly. I mean, it, it really did. Linda's ability to teach about trauma and the impact of trauma and her ability to sit with with people who've been impacted by trauma is incredible um and i have i've never really met another therapist who has both like a heart and a head understanding of trauma the way linda understands it and I think that she just has so much to offer and I am just so thrilled that she would take the time to to talk with us about all of her years of expertise and experience. And um, I call on Linda so much in my own practice and working with clients. Um, I, I don't, I can't really count the number of hours of supervision and guidance she has provided to me and to Holly too, I guess, through me and <laughs> I was gonna our, say that. Yeah. <laughs> in starting this company. Um, she's one of our biggest cheerleaders and we are just so grateful for her. I remember one of the first maybe the first time I ever actually got to talk to Linda. It was a phone call where she was explaining the Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, and I was like, whoa this woman like knows it and gets it. And, and then throughout the course of Casey and my work together, it's been like, we have this situation. Can you check with Linda? One of those, like, what, what's Linda's take on this? 
And so I don't even know if she knows how much supervision I've gotten from her as well through Casey. But um, yeah, I think just the her her knowledge base and her the way she approaches and can explain and help you know us as as younger clinicians understand and show up for our clients is why when Casey brought up having Linda on the podcast I was like absolutely that makes so much sense there's a lot of like what would Linda do when we get to situations where we're stuck um because I think for Holly and I both, like so much of our work is grounded in this belief that for our clients and for ourselves, we're just sort of swimming in this pool of big T and little t trauma. I mean, it's hard to grow up without being impacted by, you know, our a lived experience of trauma in some way. And so, you know, everything that Linda has to offer is so valuable. So there's a lot of, of moments of let's let's get on the bat phone and call Linda and see <laughs> see what she has to say about it. For me too, it's really nice to have somebody that's that's like not I don't know how to say this, but like her practice, her work has not solely been in the field that I have spent most of my time in, right? So there's not all of these other connections and stuff she's just who she is right she's she's an amazing grounded clinician that can give input and is not kind of swayed by whichever direction the industry may or may not be headed in and that's really nice and very valuable you guys are way too kind (laughs) i appreciate it very much so linda with all your experience in the field what is your definition of trauma nowadays? Nowadays is such a great question. Um, you know, when I think about trauma, there are two pieces to it that stand out for me. One is that um, trauma happens when some kind of event affects a person, and not just any event, a really serious event, something that is um, exposure to death or threatened death or surgery or sexual violence. Uh, so the big things, what, um, what Casey meant when she said big T trauma, right? The big things that can happen to all of us. And that can happen through directly experiencing it ourselves or witnessing it when it happens to someone else or finding out that someone we love and care about, a close friend, a relative, a family member has had one of these experiences. It can also happen when people are exposed to details of these experiences over and over again as a part of their work. So for example, um, the nurses in intensive care units right now dealing with people suffering from COVID and watching that death around them all the time, or first responders of different kinds. So so the first thing is an event. And we may think of those big events as rare, but in reality, they aren't. About 90% of us will be impacted by something like that at some point in our life. Um, And then the second part of the way that I think about trauma is 
So what impact does that have on me as an individual now that this event has occurred? How does it affect my body, my brain, my nervous system, my um, psychological functioning, my relationships, etc. And we know that there are specific things that happen as a result of this kind of exposure. Um, we may have these intrusive symptoms where we relive the event over and over, whether that's through upsetting memories that we can't escape from or nightmares or flashbacks um, or being triggered by things that remind us of the event or whether that's the avoidance we engage in and so that we're not re-experiencing over and over again. Avoidance through, for example, the use of alcohol and drugs or through dissociation, a sort of mentally leaving our bodies. Um, and the negative uh, view of the world and of ourselves that can linger after an event like this. So um, the sense that I'm flawed or damaged or guilty in some way for what happened to me or the sense that the world is flawed, that it's never safe, that it's a terrible place to live, those kinds of things. And you know, Holly mentioned earlier the polyvagal theory from Stephen Porges. Um, the other thing in terms of a result or an impact is how our nervous system is affected and how we as a result are more prone to irritability or aggression or risky behavior or hypervigilance or uh, dissociation and going away. So there are many, many impacts, but it's those two pieces, the event itself or a series of events for some people, it can be a whole experience of their childhood or a whole experience of their interpersonal relationships and then the impact of the event on body and mind and spirit. Thank you, Linda. Now, I assume that you're familiar with Gabor Mate and his famous quote, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain? How do you understand the impact of suffering on addiction? That's another great question. And yes, I love Gabor Mate. He's amazing. Um, you know, when we have the kind of suffering I just talked about, when we experience these impacts in our body and brain and um, psychological functioning, uh, we want to get away from that suffering any way we can. And so if I'm re-experiencing the horror of a traumatic event, I want to dull that. I want it to go away. I want to shut it down. And if I can't do that in any other way, I may turn to drugs as an attempt to shut it down, to turn my mind and memories and re-experiencing off. If my nervous system is dysregulated as a result of trauma and I'm on guard all the time, um, I can't sleep, I am hypervigilant, I'm watching constantly for danger, that's exhausting and I want to get away from that. I want to turn it, turn down the volume, and I may turn to alcohol or drugs in an attempt to do that. 
if I'm full of shame or feeling guilty or isolated or disconnected or alone, um, I may turn again to alcohol or drugs to cope with that experience of being all alone. Uh, and if I only have these negative thoughts and feelings that are constantly plaguing me and I don't experience joy or relief in my life, then I might think, well, let me get high. That'll give me a moment of pleasure, a moment of relief. Doesn't necessarily work that way, but that's what I'm seeking, and that all of those things can lead to addiction. One of the thing that one of the things that I have learned from working with Linda and and through her, the way she's exposed me to others in the field of trauma is, you know, the truth that we're emotional beings first and thinking being second. And how often we try and think our way out of trauma. And I think it just speaks to what she's explaining so well around, you know, the way our nervous system is so dysregulated by trauma. And so often I think families come to us and they are, they want to sort of will their loved one out of addiction or help their loved one rationalize addiction or think their way out of it with very little understanding or comprehension of the way in which um, trauma has just impacted the, the nervous system, the emotional experience of their loved one and their own nervous system, the, the way their own nervous system is so dysregulated um, and how their emotional response is simply a way of kind of navigating their environment. And so I, you know, I think, when I don't know if you could speak a little bit about you know, the work of establishing safety in the body as really central to understanding trauma and that connection to suffering and addiction of, of, of sort of the, the link between how we have to look first to the body, that it really is, is the importance of kind of that bottom up process. Yeah, bottom-up um, process is a great way to put it, Casey. Uh, and you're right. So many of us try to control our own feelings and experience or the feeling and experience of others through rationality and thinking it through and uh, the top-down process. And while there's nothing wrong with the top-down process, it cannot work alone. When our nervous system is dysregulated, again, uh, Stephen Porges, uh, our bodies do something called neuroception. It is where our nervous system is assessing for danger or safety. And if our nervous system perceives danger, then we automatically react in certain ways. And we can't think our way out of that because it's not a cognitive process. It's a nervous system process. And the, the thing that allows us to feel safety is something he calls the social engagement system. It is our connection with other human beings when we can look in a face and see the love in their eyes, when we can hear the tenderness and compassion in their voice, um, when we are met 
where we are with our feelings and not told you can't feel that or that feeling is not appropriate or you shouldn't feel that way. That's safety. And then our nervous systems can begin to calm down. But only through that social engagement with another person or through using the kinds of techniques most of us know that help our nervous system to calm. Taking a deep breath, feeling our feet grounded on the floor, um, touching our own heart with a hand in a way that is comforting, in a way that we wish someone else would. Those kinds of bottom-up processes. Is that what you're yes, talking about? Yes, absolutely. We had an experience um, where we had this client and we, we got this this guy's um, young son into treatment and right like he was safe and that crisis had passed and the evening of the his, the, his son admitting to treatment he had a debilitating anxiety attack right and, and it sounds a lot like what you're talking about like he's coming out of this traumatic experience and his body couldn't catch up to his mind exactly and so it was this experience for him where he didn't know what to do and, and couldn't find the resourcing within him to calm down and to to understand what was happening for him right right and so often in the midst of that kind of hyper arousal that kind of reactive place um, it's very difficult to find our own resources or to reach out to other people for help in that situation. We're terrified. And terrified, uh, again, on, a, on an autonomic nervous system level. It's not our, our cognitive thoughts that are operating in that moment. We may know cognitively, I'm safe, my child is safe, the worst is taken care of for the moment. There's nothing else I need to do. But our body doesn't know that yet. Our nervous system doesn't know that yet. It's been through this terrible experience and it's been triggered and it's still um, pumping out those neurochemicals that keep us on guard. And so having the resources in other people or in tools we learn for ourselves to calm ourselves down is absolutely critical in those situations. And of course, when you're in the middle of it, it's when it's the hardest to access those resources. Yeah. As the country grapples with the pandemic and the protests and everything in our current cultural and political climate, what are some of the signs and expressions of stress and trauma that families can look out for in themselves and their loved ones right now? Boy, it's quite a time, isn't it? We, we are truly immersed in trauma these days. It is all around us and it is impacting all of us. I mean, there is this pandemic which clearly in and of itself is a threat to life and well-being and there's everything that follows from that pandemic. You know, the loss of connection because of social distancing and wearing masks, the loss for many people of any kind of financial security, the, the actual loss of people that we love, family members, friends. Um, and at the same time all of this is happening, 
we're coming face to face with the necessary reckoning with racial injustice that is happening all across the country. You know, for black, indigenous, and other people of color, they're seeing what they've faced their whole lives play out on TV. And it's good that it's playing out on TV. You know, we need to face it. We need to be aware of this. But it is so traumatizing to watch it over and over on our television sets. And for white people, um, it's tearing away our denial, right? Um, it, it can be experienced as threatening to have that denial removed. Um, here I am face to face with my complicity in an oppressive system. That's a hard thing to face. And then watching the insurrection unfold at the Capitol and the continuing threats for the inauguration and in all 50 state capitals obviously brings up a lot of fear for all of us. What will happen? Are we safe? Uh, it sure makes us viscerally aware of our lack of control in many ways. And at the same time all of that is happening, we know from um, research that there's been an increase during this pandemic in gun ownership, in domestic violence, in murder, in suicide, and in overdoses. All of these tragedies and traumas are increasing all around us. Um, and there's this increase in a, in a clinging to completely false conspiracy theories, right? Which I think of as, you know, an attempt to find some kind of certainty in the world, some kind of control where we have no control, and an attempt, frankly, to just hang on to power and privilege when we are afraid of it being stripped away. So the expressions of trauma are all around us 24-7. And in, our, in individuals and in our families, it can play out in all the ways we've just talked about, you know, the re-experiencing, the avoiding, the disconnection, the hyperarousal, the dysregulated autonomic nervous systems. Um, we can see these things in ourselves and in each other um, all the time. And if we can simply be aware of them, then we have a chance to try and work with them instead of just trying to escape them. Do you feel like this reckoning that we're experiencing is almost like an, a necessary trauma in a way? Yes, I do. You know, um, it's a, it's a very big picture question. And by that I mean, do we think of the world and each other as a place where we are all valuable and worthwhile and worthy of um, safety and relationship and access? Or do we think of the world as a place of stratification where some people are better than other people for any number of reasons because of the color of their skin because of their age because of their 
sexual orientation, because of their level of education, you know, you name it, because of the amount of money they have, whatever it may be. Do we think of ourselves as interrelated, as dependent, interdependent on one another? Or do we think of human beings as those in power and those who serve those in power? You know, these are the big questions in our lives. And this reckoning is forcing us to contend with those big questions and to make decisions about who we want to be as people, as a country, as a world. So yes, I think it's very necessary because otherwise we can operate with the assumptions of stratification without confronting the reality that that's what we're doing. And that concludes part one of our interview with Dr. Linda G. Manning. Stay tuned next week for part two of our interview. Thanks for joining us again. Bardo, going through it with Holly and Casey. Thanks, guys.